Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. This last week, in fact, Thursday, just a couple of days ago, did that thing that tourists do, right? Especially tourists with kids. Uh, we made that rite of passage and we visited the happiest place on earth. How many of you know what I'm talking about, where I'm talking about? There you all do. Come on, you've all been there. And um, I confess, you know, whenever, I know, maybe it's because I'm British, and we are by definition like contrarian. So if you tell me it's going to be this, I think it's this. That's kind of how we operate, and maybe particularly me. I think they call it pride. I'm not sure anyway. So I'm at Disneyland. They tell you it's the happiest place on earth, and so I'm sort of like beginning the day slightly miserable, just to prove them wrong. <laughs> And that was kind of how I started out. You know, I've got four kids, and this really was about them. I just sometimes, you know, can't help but make it about me. And so I was slightly on edge just at the beginning of the day, thinking, well, this is going to match up to my expectations, and it is going to be an awfully long day. And my wife, who's not like me, she's like kind of, a, you know, positive about life in general. She was like, the kids are going to love it. We're going to stay to the fireworks. I'm like, the fireworks? You know how late the fireworks are? You know what it's going to be like with four kids under five at 9.30 p.m., love? After a day in the sun. Anyway, she's just absolutely buzzing. I'm sort of on the edge. And it didn't help that just before we set out in the car, as we were loading the kids into the car, in fact, two cars, because we have our parents-in-law here, and we can't even fit in an eight-seater together. Um, I read an email. An email popped up, and I read it. And guys, if you're on holiday, don't read emails. This is my learning. And on this email, it's an email from a friend And a friend had offered to sort of read over this project that I've been working on for the last year, really. A piece of work that uh, is part of something I've been doing. It's quite important to me. It's quite a long piece of work. I put a lot of effort into it. It's 15,000 words of sort of effort and everything else. And, And I asked him just to look at it and maybe suggest some thoughts, some areas where I could work on it. And I've got to kind of finish this project fairly soon before we plant this church. And He sent me this email sort of giving his feedback and it was not what I had expected. It was not what I had hoped for. This email said, look, actually this piece of work needs a substantial amount of work on it. And in that moment, I've got to be honest, it's a tiny thing, right? But in that moment, my heart sank. I was, I was, this almost despondent. And so I'm about to drive to Disney with the kids. I already need a little bit of help to be positive at Disneyland, folks. I've explained that to you. And yet I felt just discouragement, despondency sort of come over me. And the whole day, if I'm honest, was a battle. And I'm having these experiences that I know are just incredible gifts, right? I'm on the Dumbo and Dumbo's flapping away with my daughter. I'm like on the teacups, I'm on the carousel, riding the horse in Disney, it's fantastic. And yet I'm just in another place, mentally. I'm not there, not enjoying it. I've, my joy has been stolen by this, in many ways, small event. I've had loads of feedback recently as we prepared to sort of be be ordained in the Church of England and, and prepared to take in this new leadership role. I've received feedback on a number of different occasions. And one of the fee- pieces of feedback, particularly about my leadership, something that I need to be aware of is I can be discouraged quickly. 
that I sometimes, it's easy for me to be discouraged, and I lack, some have questioned whether I lack resilience. It's been hard to hear that, but moments like that remind me that yes, it is quite quick, I, I am quite quick to be discouraged at times. Now let's be honest, the life of faith is not a life of victory after victory after victory. We spoke last week about faith, for those of you who are here, we spoke about faith and how actually it's this incredible um, adventure of risk and, and as we risk, we receive God's reward. His reward is his friendship, his reward is his, his intimacy with him, it's favor and blessing and freedom, but if we're honest, that's not all that happens in the life of faith, is it? It's not just victory. There are moments where we all experience loss. Maybe today you've come into this place with loss in your mind, in your heart. Maybe you've lost someone. Maybe a relationship has ended recently and you're trying to figure out what it means to, to carry on in, in the life of that. Maybe, you've, maybe somebody's died and there's just a grief within you, a lot of that kind of loss. Maybe you've lost a job. Trying to recalibrate your life and even figure out what it means to follow Jesus in the middle of this new experience. You've lost, maybe you failed. That's what I felt on Thursday morning. I felt like, oh, I failed. I hate failing. <laughs> it's like, right, I know, you know people who are successful say, oh, you know, I love failure, because that's how you learn. And I'm like, no, I don't love failure. I really just want to succeed. I want to be a successful person, but only by succeeding. That's kind of how, that's kind of my vision of flourishing, <laughs> you know? I hate failing. It's miserable. And maybe there's that sense in you of like, am I failing? Maybe there's a, maybe, maybe somebody, you've just had a feedback at work and you feel like you're underperforming or maybe, yeah, there is relational conflict that makes you feel like you're living with failure. Maybe at school, maybe at college or something else, maybe you're teaching, whatever it might be. We experience loss, we experience failure and we experience waiting. That's the other one. The Christian life is full of waiting. <laughs> and it isn't just moments of like, God breaking in in power. Yes, we believe for those moments, we love these moments when they happen, but often we wait. The journey to the promised land is always through the wilderness, and the wilderness always involves waiting. How do we proceed as people of faith in the midst of these challenges? What is it that enables us to go on in the faith, to keep on trusting, to keep on risking, to keep on walking hand in hand with God in this friendship that I said two weeks ago was to characterize everything that we are and everything we do? How do we do that? What I wanna suggest this morning, really simple idea, is that the key thing we need to understand and be filled with is hope, hope. Hope is the thing. Hope is the quality, the characteristic, if you like, that fires faith. I did some sort of uh, middle school level research on fire. I was thinking about fire this week, right? And I was thinking about it, and I, I found this, um, this image here on, on Google, something I've just discovered, Google. And um, I think we perhaps have it on the screen, right? So here we have this fire. Now, this obviously is talking about actual fire. But imagine that this fire is your fire of life with God. Now fires need three things, so I am told. 
to keep going. Oxygen, heat, and fuel. I think hope is like oxygen. Hope is like oxygen. It oxygenates the life with God. Like your faith, you need faith, hope, and love to keep those kind of the Trinitarian sort of idea, right? You need faith, hope, and love to keep going in the Christian life. I want to say that hope, this morning, I want to say that hope is like oxygen. Your life of faith will, will burn out quite quickly if you don't have hope. And if your hope isn't in the right place. And you might have a great Sunday experience. Maybe today God speaks to you. Maybe he touches you. Maybe even in the worship you've already experienced him. But if your hope isn't rooted in the right place, something will happen. It will knock you off course and your faith will suffer. We need to be people of hope. And we need to be people who know how and where to locate their hope. Now, there's a guy in the scriptures that I think sort of embodies hope more powerfully than than many others. At least when I think about hope, and immediately, even this week when I was praying and thinking about this, immediately my head went to thinking about him, and his name's Abraham. So if you want, if you've got a Bible, we might want to open up to Romans chapter four. We're going to look at Abraham's story. Uh, If you've got a smartphone, that also works. If you've got a Bible and you're not sure how to navigate your way through it, New Testament starts about two ways through, two thirds of the way through the Bible. There are four stories about Jesus, books that sort of tell this gospel story, good news story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After that, there's Acts, talking about the early life of the church, and then there's Romans. And Romans is sort of a letter. It's the first letter in the New Testament in terms of how the New Testament's arranged. And it's written by this guy, Paul, to this church in Rome, full of both Jews and Gentiles. And they're trying to figure out how to do life with God in this pagan culture, in this big city, trying to, ha- trying to figure out what it means to do that together. And Paul writes this um, sort of excursus, this big picture narrative about the gospel. Now that's got to be central to their identity. They have to understand the gospel if they're going to understand how to live the Christian life. And quite quickly into that story, he starts telling Israel's story. Because he actually can't understand the gospel story without understanding the Israel story. And because he's talking about the Israel story, the story of God's people in the Old Testament, he ends up talking about this guy, Abraham. Now, those of you who've been at Sunday school and grown up in the church, and I know that's not everybody here, but those of you who have, you've maybe heard about Abraham. In fact, I came here when I was four. I came to Costa Mesa when I was four. My dad was on um, like a sabbatical like the one Darren's on now. And I remember going to a, I went to like a, <laughs> went to a church in Newport Beach and like it's part of a Sunday school thing. And they had us sing this song that I'd never even heard in my life and it was called Father Abraham. Father Abraham has many sons, which I have since realized is like meat and drink to you guys. You love the Father Abraham song. I'd never heard of it. Like I didn't have any consciousness that there was a song. I, at this point, I didn't even know there was a Father Abraham. But I didn't, certainly didn't know there was a song. It was kind of fun. Everybody was loving it. And I was like, what's this song? I'm just doing the hand thing. What's the song? Anyway, Father Abraham. So it's part of your culture maybe. But Abraham is this really important figure in the Old Testament. In fact, the whole Bible, he becomes a model of faith. Why so? Well, the reason that Abraham is so important to the history and the story of the scriptures is because he is one of God's go-to people in this deliverance, this rescue, restoration project that God kicks into motion after the fall. So God sets up this creation in which 
There's intimacy and, and, and friendship. We talked about that in the first week I was here. And, and it all goes horribly wrong. Rather than accepting this invitation into friendship, Adam and Eve choose to try and, choose to try and find equality with God. Rather than friendship, they, they choose to try and find equality with God. Uh, autonomy, if you like. Self-governance. Rather than dependence, they choose independence. Beyonce said something about that. And so they lose. Some of you pricked up Beyonce. I wasn't listening, but now you said Beyonce. They choose autonomy, and therefore they lose connection. They lose intimacy. And God sets about, from that point on, making right what they made wrong. The rest of the Bible, if you like, after Genesis 3, is God's relentless quest to bring his people back to himself and through his people to bring all creation under his rule and his reign, to establish, if you like, his kingdom. That's the story. Abraham becomes one of the key actors in that story because God shows up to him and says, Abraham, I've got a project for you. What I want you to do is trust me. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to go. And Abraham's like, great. What's the next instruction? And God's like, there's no more. That's it. And Abraham's like, what? What? And yet, he trusts God and he goes. We might great definition of faith, by the way. Faith is going without knowing. That's what Abraham does. He goes without knowing. And God says, yes, he's got it. Adam and Eve, like, they got it for a while. But they, 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 try, they tried to choose a life of independence. They didn't want to trust me. He's a guy that trusts me. I could do something with a guy like this. So he makes a promise to Abraham, right? He says, I'm going to bless everyone through you. Here's how I'm going to do it. You're going to have a son. That son's going to become a nation. Through that nation, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham's like, awesome. There is a problem, God. I'm really, really old. <laughs> like, really old. Not as old as you, but I'm really old. And my wife, you know, points away from Sarah at this point. Don't even be rude about your wife, by the way, guys. She's really old. You know? But there is a problem here, right? The promise is given, and yet the reality of the promise doesn't, doesn't look achievable. But Abraham trusts God. That's the point. And so he's held up as a, a paradigm, a paragon, the pinnacle of faith. And this is what we read in chapter 4 of Romans, verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. The promise to Abraham, the promise to us. So that it may, may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. In other words, this isn't about the Jewish people. It was never just about the Jewish people. It was about the whole world being blessed, being receiving that promise from God about everything being renewed. He is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. There's faith. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things which were not. What is the unique quality of Abraham's faith? What is it that marks his faith out as being special, as being unique, and therefore being rewarded by God? Is it not his hope? 
Is it not his hope? What do we read in the next verse? 18, verse 18. Against all hope. Abraham in hope believed. And so God made him the father of many nations. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. What makes Abraham's faith unique is his hope. And that hope, what is his hope like? What is, the, what, what is hope about? What do we learn from Abraham about hope? We, we, we learn that it's rugged, right? It's strong, it's solid, it's secure, it's rugged. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. In other words, Abraham's hope is not rational It's against all hope. What kind of hope is it against? It's against rational hope. It's against the hope that that the world would understand as being hope. The word hope used here in the the New Testament is elpis. It means the anticipation, the expectation of something good. Now we're kind of trained to expect good things, usually by our previous experience. This is kind of how we work as human beings. It's also how animals work, by the way. If you notice this, if you've got a dog, I mean, I absolutely do not suggest you do this, but if you clip your dog around the ear, like, and if you do that enough, and you, you, kind of, you see these people who mistreat their dogs or their pets, those dogs begin to expect the same behavior again, right? It's the same, the reverse as well, with dogs or with, with cats, I guess. I don't really know cats. I don't really like cats. That's a confession. But with, with dogs or, or even, even with children, I have some of those. And it, like... <laughs> If you feed them, they then expect more food. They come back when they're hungry again. And, they, and, and if you love them, they, ex, they, they expect love. It's this most wonderful and virtuous cycle. And this is kind of how hope works with us. What we experience, so we then begin to expect, right? It works with us as humans as well. If we have a really bad experience, maybe as a kid, maybe our parents really messed up, that begins to color the whole of our lives. We need healing because of that. Or sometimes we're set up really well by our parents as well. No parent is perfect, but we're set up well by our parents. And, and therefore, we have kind of a positive outlook on life. It's the same with the weather, by the way, folks. Well, the reason all other Brits are miserable is the weather's so horrible. And you guys are just all happy. <laughs> this, this is my experience of you. So we expect what we have experienced. What the scripture is saying here is that Abram does not have an expectation based upon his experience. Against all hope, not because of his experience he believes. He has another kind of hope. Against all hope, against all expectation based on experience, Abraham in hope believes. What, what is the root, what is the character, what is the foundation of Abraham's hope? Of his rugged hope. Why is it so rugged? It's rugged because it is rooted in another location And that location is the character of God, which is unchanging. God is faithful, and Abraham trusts. He has faith in God's faithfulness. And therefore, his hope is unchanging as well. His hope is rugged because his trust is in God, who never changes. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. It says it doesn't, he doesn't weaken in his faith. Even in the absence of evidence, Abraham hopes. His hope is rugged. His hope is also real. I love this. With verse 19, without weakening in his faith, get this, he faced the fact. 
that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, <laughs> and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Another, another strategy we have for, for kind of um, creating, uh, summoning up hope within our culture is power of positive thinking. Fake it till you make it, right? But essentially, there's a psychologist call it denial, <laughs> right? And in the church, this exists as well. How are you? I'm good. Really? You're good? Funny, I, mean, I used to think this when we went to In-N-Out, when we used to live, we used to live here three and a half years we were here. You ask somebody how they're in and out, how they are in the, in the line at In-N-Out, they don't expect it, and they always answer the same way. Try, try this today at lunch. You ask them, how are you? I'm good. Somebody once said to me, I'm always good. And I thought to myself, that's not possible, is it? Is it possible that you would always be good? Anyway, that surprised me. It, it, it characterizes that sense of like, let's fake it. Let's pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We got this. Yes, we can. It's not always possible, is it? And Abraham doesn't display a faith which is rooted in denial. No, he's, he's facing the fact. It's, it's, it's rugged and it's real. It's authentic. Is that what we see in Jesus? Hanging there on the cross and he's not faking. Oh, I wish, you know, in Gethsemane, Lord, I wish, paraphrasing, I wish it didn't have to be like this. Father, take this cup from me. Yeah, not what I will, but your will be done. His faith is real. Abraham, why is it real? It's because he's relocated his hope. It's not based in his experience. It's based in God and his character. So his faith is rugged, it's strong, it's powerful, it's, it's real, it's also resilient. Without weakening in the faith. He says... Verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded, fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him, to him as righteousness. It's resilient. His faith is resilient. It, it's bigger than it's his circumstance because it's founded in a different place been relocated beyond his experience to God and his character. It's the people who have resilient faith that inspire us. It's the people that have, have faith that's filled with hope. These are the people we look to. These are the people whose examples, they, they, they shape us. We look to them and we need these people around us. These are the people that encourage us. I was reading this week uh, the story again of, uh, of a lady called Corrie Ten Boom. Do you know that name? Some of you have probably read her book, The Hiding Place. If you've never read that book, read that book. It's so encouraging. You will, if you're anything like me, you will be sobbing your way through it. But it's so powerful. I didn't know this about Corrie Ten Boom. She actually she died in 1983, and she actually died in she she'd moved to Placentia in California. I didn't know that. But she became well-known because she, her family, um, they were actually watchmakers by trade. And she grew up in like a watchmaking house. Um, like at the front of the house was the shop and then back was like all the, the rooms and everything else. And her family grew up there. <clears throat> she was trained, I think the first female watchmaker 
in all of Holland, actually. It's really interesting. And so she, she's a fan, you know, her uh, family was fantastic, you know, part of the community there. And then uh, in the Second World War, the, um, the Nazis occupied Holland and um, under Nazi re- the Nazi regime in Europe, as you know, there was a huge amount of persecution, particularly the Jewish people. And people began to come to their family. And, um, and the father, her father particularly, just just was so moved to bring people in. And so her house became the hiding place, hence the name of the book. And eventually, I think they had like different families and they became part of the resistance network in that town. Somebody ratted on them, somebody told the authorities. And the whole family's arrested and they went to prison and eventually to concentration camps. And Corrie was the only person in the family who survived. She went into a concentration camp, and you read the book, the suffering is unimaginable, of seeing her parents taken from her, knowing she'd never see them again. Uh, other members of her family, just the most horrific, horrific suffering. And Corrie and her sister survived the latest, and before um, she's released, her sister Betsy dies. And Betsy says this before she dies, and this is a message that Corrie then carries to the whole world. She says, Betsy says, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Wow. Imagine being the kind of person in the midst of a concentration camp, in the midst of starvation, seeing literally, being part of literally hell on earth, being able to say that. There's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. What is that? What is that thing? That so colors somebody's perspective. That What was it that, Enabled Corrie to then preach a message of reconciliation and forgiveness of the pe- even the people that captured her, and she did that, forgave them. How? Hope. Hope. See, her hope was not in her circumstances. Her hope was in something else. Her hope was in God's character, also in God's activity, in God's resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the love that God had shown to her in Jesus Christ. That was where it was based. She had relocated her hope. It was resilient because of that. It was real. It was rugged. It was determined. It stood the test, even the most horrendous test. What then does hope do? That's what hope is. What does hope do? What could hope do for us? We read, hope allows us to be honest. We've already talked about that. We don't need to hide. We don't need to fake. We can be honest about our circumstances. But also we can look beyond our circumstances. Hope allows us not not to be defined by our circumstances, to look beyond them, not in some kind of fake it till you make it way, but in a real, in a gritty, in an authentic way. We can look beyond the things that are happening to us in the day to day because because our hope isn't based in the day to day. Where is the location of our hope? Paul says this in Verse 23 of Romans 4. The words it was credited to him, talking about Abraham, were it not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. In other words, to us, for whom God will count as his people, as his favored ones. For us who believe in him, who raised our Lord from the dead, Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. How can we look beyond the circumstances? It's this. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You want to know what the doctrine, if you like, that makes the difference? When the rubber hits the road, it's the resurrection from the dead. 
You know, the resurrection from the dead for us isn't just some kind of esoteric, abstract doctrine. It's a reality based in history through which everything else is different. You're in the darkest suffering. We're we're a people of hope. And here's why. We we can say, even in death, even in the grave, grave even the grave doesn't overpower us, the fear of death doesn't overpower us, because we say that what God did for Jesus, so he will do for me. Isn't that amazing? What God did for his son Jesus, raising him from the dead, so he will do for me. So he will do for those I love. So even in my darkest hour, I don't need to be afraid. Even my, in my deepest loss, I, I don't need to be afraid. He won't abandon me to the grave. He's, he won't let, as the psalmist says, he won't abandon me to the grave. He will not let his Holy One see corruption. Amazing. The power of really understanding the resurrection. Abraham, even before the resurrection, has that kind of faith. Paul is looking to the Roman church and saying, this is the kind of people you need to be. This is how you become resilient. This is how you look beyond your circumstance. And I want to show a small video of my pastor, Nicky Gumbel, who's pioneered the Alpha Course and just telling a story of how he has seen and how he's lived that kind of faith. See that. I think of an occasion some years ago when I was playing squash with one, one of my very best friends, Mick Hawkins. He just played a beautiful backhand drive and as he turned to play the forehand, he just dropped dead of a heart attack. And I have never cried out to God more than I did in that moment. He has six children, the youngest was six and the oldest was 18. And we had to tell each of these children it was the most painful thing. And it, it still is today the most painful thing for me. At five o'clock the following morning, I went out for a walk because obviously I couldn't sleep and I was praying. I crying out to God saying, God, I don't understand why this has happened. But I'm not going to stop trusting in you. I'm not going to give up praying. Corrie ten Boom said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the driver. Amazing, amazing story. I know that man, Nicky, well. We've walked together around Hyde Park and he's so full of wisdom. And I just think that moment for him, that decision, at five o'clock the next morning after the, the deepest loss, having to do the most difficult thing, how that has borne fruit in his life. That decision to, to locate his hope, not in the circumstance, in God. To trust God, to, to set his heart in God. Hope allows us to look beyond our circumstance. Hope transforms our circumstance too. Romans 5, just moving on a few verses, 3 to 4. Paul says, not only so, we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. As other versions, oh, yeah, hope does not put us to shame. Other versions say hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Hope transforms our circumstances. 
we understand that the things we're looking for in life, they're found in God. You know, we want comfort. We want to be secure and safe. It's not a wrong desire. But we look in the wrong places for that. Hope says, no, I'm going to put that in God. I'm not going to look for my next paycheck for those things. I'm not going to look, I'm not going to seek to locate that security in my career. I'm not, going to, I'm not even going to place that in my marriage. I'm not even going to place that in, in my relationship with my kids. I'm going to place that in God. God alone is my safety. We want to be in control, and, and when we hope in the right place, we're able to give up control and trust God that he is in control, that he has a plan for us, that even though we walk through the darkest valley, he's with us. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Our cup overflows. That his goodness and his mercy will follow us all the days of our life, that we'll dwell in his house our whole life long. It transforms our experience of suffering. And therefore, it does not disappoint us. What does this mean for us today? What does it mean for you? Here's my question to you as I close. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? Do you need to relocate your hope this morning? Do you need to position your hope? Do you need to replace your hope in God, in his character, in the resurrection of Jesus, the, the sure and fixed hope that what God has done for Jesus, so he will do for you? Maybe Nikki's example, maybe Corrie ten Boom's example, maybe Abraham's example. Maybe Nikki's example of, of, pr- of praying, of taking it. To, maybe that's how you do that. You take it to God. You make a prayerful decision this morning. God, I, I choose to hope again in you. As the psalmist, verse Psalm 42 says, why are you down in the dumps, dear soul? Message version. Why are you crying the blues? Fix my eyes on God. For I will... NRSV, yet again praise him, my saviour and my God. Fix, maybe you need to prayerfully decide to fix your eyes on God this morning. A, a biz, you need to do business with God this morning. Maybe it's, uh, you, you just need God's help to persevere in the midst of it. You need, you've got to pour his power into you so you can persevere in this hope. Maybe you need to praise him. Maybe sometimes it's praise that liberates us from hopelessness. Whatever it is, I want to challenge you to do that this morning. I want, to, I want to give you a vision as well. What would Long Beach look like if the garden continued in this story of being a people of hope? If we trusted right down to the depths of who we are as a church that God was worth hoping in. And we took that message wherever we went, to the shops, the colleges, the businesses, the families, wherever it is we go, how would this city look different? A people of hope means a city of hope. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.